Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 353, Lawyers versus Clerics. I am speaking this on Friday the 9th of September, the day after Elizabeth II died. I know it's not that unexpected, she was getting on a bit after all, but it still comes as a terrible shock actually. She was a very impressive person, constant, seemingly unflappable, such a strong and impressive sense of duty that she inspired everyone I think. She's been around all my life. She had been 12 years on the throne before I came along and it will be very strange indeed not to have her around. She's been there ever since I've been here. We will miss her and may she rest in peace. We need to start the episode, I'm afraid to say, with religion again in January 1626. So sorry, it'll be a theme I have to say, but it is important because over the first five years of Charles's reign there was a de facto religious settlement even if it was never called that. And we will probably need to talk about William Lord, because his name does keep bobbing to the surface like an apple in one of those water tubs at the village fete. And now it becomes urgent, because he would play a small but important initial role in the next parliament, actually. And of course, he'll be our companion for many a year from here on in, becoming at some stage Charles's Archbishop of Canterbury. So... Let me start by giving you a brief introduction to William Lord and his history so far up to 1626. William Lord was the son of a prosperous clothier from the fair town of Reading in Berkshire. It's not that fair, actually, to be honest. He was born 
1573. As a result, he'd have to suffer the slings and arrows of jokes about his lowly origins. And whereas today, of course, we'd wear that badge with pride and openly, back then it wasn't seen as something to be proud of. He was always very sensitive about it. He went to Oxford University, to St John's College, around whose corridors the whiff of high church slash Catholicism continued to creep. He came early to controversy, actually. In 1602, he earned the wrath of the Calvinist Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott, for his views. Lord wouldn't forget Abbott's criticism, and he would have his revenge. By 1604, he was already claiming there could be no true church without diocesan bishops and being accused by his profs of seeking to sow dissension within the Church of England. This stuff is significant. While I've heard it casually claimed that, oh, England cut itself off from the continent by the Reformation, such a claim is, of course, historically absurd. The English church was, of course, very much part of an international community of reformed churches. Already by 1606, through his views about the authority of bishops, Lord was being accused of unchurching the foreign reformed churches. By 1611, Lord had been introduced to the court, preaching before King James through the offices of Richard Neal. Richard Neal was an Arminian-leaning bishop who rose to become the Archbishop of York. During the writing of this programme, gentle listeners, I became aware of two facts, capital F, worthy of comment. The first is a little biddy fact, which is that Neal was the target of Oliver Cromwell's first speech in the 1628-9 Parliament, a speech apparently poorly received, but probably attacking Neal's Arminianism. The second fact demands a digression. So I learned that it was Richard Neal who was involved in condemning the last person to be burned at the stake in England. This person's name was Edward Whiteman, a Leicestershire man from Inkle in 1612. Edward was described as an Anabaptist who denied things like the Trinity and uh, the divinity of Jesus, which little thing, obviously, things which at the time would almost certainly have got up pretty much everyone's nose. He was interrogated by various clerics, including Lord, as it happens, but he was condemned finally at Litchfield, where Neil was bishop, and therefore officiating at the time. Now, Whiteman seems to have believed he could convince people of his case to their very last, arguing it furiously, even sending a text to James text in the sense of written thing rather than being an early user of mobile phones you understand but look this arguing was like struggling in a snare or being caught in quicksand the harder you struggle the tighter the snare or the deeper you sink not that i've ever been caught in a snare or quicksand but it is one of the things i have seen in films so i assume it must be true anyway his efforts just made him look increasingly dangerous and radical so it made it worse so Edward Whiteman was taken to the stake in front of a large crowd. The pain of the flames caused him to cry out more than an ouch, I mean. And some of the crowd saw this as a recantation and they rushed to pull him off, though they were also burned in the process. And Whiteman was, and I quote, well scorched, which makes him sound a bit like a carpet, poor man. But within a couple of weeks, Whiteman was unrepentant. So he was condemned again and this time the burning was completed on Easter Saturday. The courage of doing that astounds me. 
The history of removing the penalty of burning permanently is then a little confused, but seems to be broadly this. At the long parliament, with the removal of bishops, the rights of ecclesiastical courts were effectively removed, burning along with it. Everything was then restored at the Restoration, though, which is rather the nature of restorations, of course. Finally, in 1677, the Ecclesiastical Jurisdiction Act effectively banned the burning of heretics. The Whiteman family later emigrated to America. There is tra tradition that the poet Walt Whitman was a descendant, but I haven't looked into that, so I probably shouldn't have mentioned it. Anyway, there you go, another baby step, and here endeth the digression. 1617, Lord became the Dean of Gloucester Cathedral, where he placed the altar at the east end of the church and insisted that people bow as they approached it. This is a central trigger of controversy, this bowing and placing the altar at the east end here, both here and in Scotland, where your Calvinist, or indeed Church of England, might place a communion table where folks could gather around it, community-like, rather than the sort of pompous Holy of Holies stuff. Through all of this, Neil is playing Dumbledore to Lords Harry Potter, or Gandalf to Lords Frodo, the role of protector, because controversy and argument follows Lord all through his career, like flies after a blackcurrant sandwich, and someone has to hold the shield and keep the darts off him while Lord concentrates on advancing the cause of Arminianism, true religion or crypto-Catholicism, depending on your point of view. There is a tradition that James identified Lord as trouble on this quote attributed to him. I keep Lord back from all place of rule and authority because I find he hath a restless spirit and cannot see when matters are well, but loves to toss and change and bring things to a pitch of reformation in his own brain. Take him to you, but upon my soul you will repent it. The authenticity of the quote is disputed, although it's often quoted, actually. And also it is worth saying that the process I'm involved in here of focusing on one character to make the story a bit more immediate to everyone carries with it the same danger as when Civil War historians complain bitterly that it's not all about Oliver bloody Cromwell, you know. Lord was just one person out of a multitude of clerics that took a more or less Arminian view of church ceremonial and, and theology. Nonetheless, he was deeply influential and became the target for his opponents and no one, or no one I've become aware of, ever said to William Lord, oh, come on, Billy, turn the volume up. Would you stop sitting on the fence and being so darn emollient? This stuff mattered to Lord as it did to everyone else. Life and death stuff. More than that, eternal life and eternal death stuff. Whether or not the quote was from James, he did keep him a little at arm's length in 1621 by appointing Lord not to the deanery of Westminster where he'd be in the centre of things and for which he was a candidate, but as Bishop of St David's, which was a way away. But it did mean Lord was now a bishop, of course, and when he was in London during the 1620s, he became part of the Durham House Group. Durham House was Richard Neal's palatial house on the Strand and it became a meeting place for like-minded, Arminian divines. It was big enough to house the households of more than one bishop on the move, like Lord, and it seems to have developed a rather homely, corporate atmosphere, which has been credited to the abilities of Dorothy Neal at supporting the divines in their comings and goings and debates. 
the Durham House Group will have a critical influence on royal attitudes towards the religious settlement that emerges by 1630. Meanwhile, Lord also became Buckingham's chaplain and religious confidant. So Buckingham therefore tended to use Lord as a channel of communication between himself and Charles. Now this is rather important because Lord was now at the centre of affairs with direct access to the king. But on the other hand, it also meant that in public, Lord now often had to tone down the virulence of his pronouncements because Buckingham was much more aware of the need to work with Parliament and steer that middle way that James had found. So Lord was sometimes forced to keep quiet or keep a lid on things. On James's death, though, it was Charles that commissioned Lord for advice on the leading churchman that he could rely on. In the struggle between Calvinist and Arminian, Lord's list was to prove a hammer blow, because he sent back a list of names marked O for Orthodox and P for Puritan to Charles. Note, there was no marker for Arminian. They, of course, as far as Lord were concerned, were no more than absolutely Orthodox. Lord's list began the process of securing the virtual exclusion of Calvinists from crucial groups of ecclesiastical committees and a growing Arminian dominance of the bishoprics. Next, Charles asked for general advice about what he should do as regards policy and asked William Lord to do so after discussing church policy with Lancelot Andrews, the venerable and indeed venerated cleric, and also, you guessed it, a leading Arminian. So, switching back to January 1626 and Charles then, I am building a picture of Charles who already has a leaning quite strongly to what might be described as an Arminian plus position. He's already favouring the Arminian view, plus he has very strong views on the central importance of bishops, that would make many of even the Arminians blench. Now, there is a difference of opinion about this. New revisionists, such as Kevin Sharp and Julian Davies, argue that Charles was not really that interested about the ins and outs of doctrine, and particularly not about the central burning issue of predestination. And all he really cared about was conformity and personal devotion. And from after the June 26 Parliament, there are signs that in terms of doctrinal debate, Charles began to realise that in encouraging debate about doctrine, he released the furies on the world and begins to return to his father's approach of just trying to squish those furies back into an airtight box surrounded by space through which no one could hear the screams. But at the start of the realm, that was not the case, as demonstrated by the York House Conference, when he invited divines from both sides to come and have a full and frank exchange of views under the auspices of Buckingham and just get this thing thrashed out in a way that the thing was just not thrashable. The fact that the York House Conference took place at all actually owed a lot to a counterattack by the Calvinists, seriously alarmed by this leap in influence of the Arminians. But in their counterattack, they showed a split in strategy that would weaken the Calvinist party throughout. So, on the one hand, the most zealous included the Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott, William Fines, who was Lord Say and Seal, and Robert Rich, the Earl of Warwick. Now, they favoured a full frontal pistols at dawn approach. They wanted a complete condemnation of Montague's writings, and they wanted a restatement 
of the orthodoxy of the Church of England that incorporated the Synod of Dort at its heart. Incidentally, at that point, there are billions of names that will come and go throughout the English Revolution. So for those of you who can bear to go to the web, I have started something that I wanted to call a gazetteer of people. But I understand that I can't call it that because gazetteer is something geographical, which is frankly quite irritating of it. And I would like the word to consider, please, changing its meaning to that which I would like it to mean. A bit like those people who wish that irregardless was actually mm, a word. But until that happens, I'm going to use the phrase British Revolutionary Biographies, BRB. Basically, it's a list of names, Scottish, Irish, English of the 1625 to 1616 period, Broadly with a brief bio, if you get lost about who's who, Warwick, Say and Seal will be common names on the Puritan side. So that's on the website. It'll grow with time, by the way. So, Warwick, Say and Seal, Abbott, favoured a full frontal attack. But the old guard, led by William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke, wanted to use emolliency and emollients, a middle ground, which sort of carried a line that was in line with the Synod Synod of Dort without actually reproducing it, a generous reading of Montague's works, and a return to James's approach on just not allowing debate on the vexed matter of predestination because you just couldn't get an answer. It would effectively therefore be a return to the Jimmy One strategy. This split in strategic approach by the Calvinists though would ultimately prove a problem for them because a united front is always best and a united front is what the Arminians had. So anyway, at this time, the abbot, Warwick, Say and Seal got their way, and a debate took place at York House. But they did not get their way with a clear Calvinist outcome. In fact, it was no better for either side than a no-score draw, although the Arminians, of course, took the traditional approach of declaring victory anyway. So, the hopes of Warwick and Say and Seal turned to Parliament. Because Parliament could provide a counterbalance to the growing influence of Arminian clergy. The composition of the commons was almost exclusively Calvinist. Nicholas Tiaka, for example, the historian, identified just two Arminian members of the commons in the 1620s, so it was driven very much by a Calvinist agenda. In Parliament, lay the Calvinists' best chance to put real pressure on the king, because if he wanted a subsidy, he'd have to keep the Calvinists happy on religion. And it happens... They were to be lucky because events would shortly lead Charles and his council to decide that a new parliament should indeed be called. One reason for this was, of course, the hideous failure at Cardiz. Something needed to be done about that. And foreign policy was to deliver another reason because another decision taken in council there, an absolutely humongous cry it out from the mountain kind of decision, was the decision to do a 180 degree turn on their strategy towards France. So France would no longer be an ally, their status would be changed from ally, we love them and want to be close to them, to enemy, we condemn them and all their works to the seventh circle, etc, etc. The decision was taken to support the Huguenots in La Rochelle rather than build an anti-Habsburg alliance. Now it is entirely understandable. The thinking went that Richelieu had treated them thoroughly shabbily by using English ships against Huguenots, against Buckingham's express instructions that they were not to be lent on that basis. It embarrassed Charles, who saw himself as the inheritor of Elizabeth's mantle as defender of the French Calvinists. It also meant 
that rather than bones throw to keep Parliament on board and vote for subsidies, red meat could be used. The penal recusancy laws could once more be turned back on. And hopefully that would mean the money tap would be turned on by Parliament, armies and navies would be raised, glorious victory ensue, life of art collecting follow, and so on and so forth. But it was a massive, massive risk. Little England, population four and a half million, was now at war with two of Europe's most powerful kingdoms, with combined populations of 30 million in Europe alone, let alone their empires. Talk about brave, talk about David and Goliath stuff. And actually, when Parliament opened, the French crown would suddenly have signed a peace treaty with the Huguenots, which then absolutely robbed Charles of any foreign strategy at all. Though that was pretty short-lived, it has to be said. But anyway, you get the point. A brave strategy, principled, which is Charles all over, and also, you know, foolhardy. As planning for Parliament got underway, because Charles and Buckingham accepted they'd not managed the last one very well, how the Arminian and Calvinist split was to be handled was part of the discussion. Charles expressed in council his core concern that the 1625 Commons had sought to touch his sovereignty. But at this point, he still believed Parliament was an organisation he could and should work with. The problem, he believed, was just a tiny group of troublemakers. And the word around court was that, for the distemper of five or six men, he would not be angry with his people, but still endeavour to preserve their love to him. So, the argument of necessity in a time of war, some red meat in anti-recusancy laws as giveaways to the Calviners, that would be leavened at the same time with a message that they were required to give loyalty and obligation to their monarch. To deliver this message, Charles would turn to Arminian, William Lord, to give the customary sermon to the Houses of Parliament. However, much to your pain and distress, I have to tell you that I am not going to cover this this week, and we're going to talk about the 1626 Parliament next week, and I'm going to noodle away from the events of the Parliament and digress to address the main title of this episode, Clerics versus Lawyers. Although I simply cannot get monsters versus aliens out of my mind. I have no idea which is the monster and which is the alien. Just can't get the name out of my mind. Sorry about that. Anyway, this is because it forms a backdrop to the 1626 Parliament. And there is a, an idea, in an old idea, and mainly in Whiggish history tradition, it has to be said, that has mused about the difference in attitude between lawyers and clerics in Charles's reign and the influence that they have in, within and without a parliament. So the contention is that if you're looking for a rebellious element in parliament, and specifically in the House of Commons, you might do very well to have a look at the impact of legal training. Quite a few of the names we've come across, Robert Phillips, Edward Cook, for example, were either lawyers or had been educated at the ends of court. Meanwhile, on the other hand, if you're looking for folks that support the idea of an all-powerful, divinely appointed monarch, you might simply enter the word clergy into your search box. So we're going to explore that idea a little bit and then we can look at it in the 1626 Parliament. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before I go into this, it is a theory that comes with a health warning. As the story unfolds and as people are forced to pick sides, there is absolutely no guarantee at all that someone who cuts up rough against Charles in 1625 to 1630 will then fight against him when it comes to the big dust-up. There are many reasons why people take sides, as we will discuss when we get there. On the other hand, there was of course a tradition that Calvinist clergy were equivocal about royal authority, as natural inheritors of the idea that a ruler could be removed where they acted against true religion resistance theory, as it was called. So there are no hard and fast rules here, no on-off switch clergy lawyer. However, I would contend that there is something in this theory, if only in the statement that Arminian clergy tended to support royal supremacy and divine right, and that a respect and veneration for the common law and its primacy over royal authority was bolstered by a number of people with legal training within Parliament. In general, then, the rationale goes like this in a bit more detail. Arminianism stressed order, ceremony, form, structure and Episcopal governance in religion, a top-down approach to religion that looked at the Reformation as a top-down process, Erastian, I think is the word, rather than as a popular expression of will and belief. So it is perhaps unsurprising that this mapped onto the order and structure inherent in royal supremacy, and incidentally also unsurprising that Charles preferred the cut of the Arminian jib to the cut of the Calvinist jib, or at least the cut of the more extreme Calvinist jib. Shall I stop using the word jib, i.e. Puritans? So John Buckeridge was the Bishop of Ely, open brackets, Arminian, close brackets, and Lord's old tutor, and therefore an influence on his development. In 1606, John Buckeridge taught in a sermon that you gave the king's subsidies because it was their right to have them, not for fun. You pay tribute and custom and subsidies of duty and justice. You give them not of courtesy, and they are stipendium regis, not premium. They are king's stipend or pay, not his reward. David Owen, a clergyman in 1610, wrote that kings have their authority from God and are his vice-regents on earth to execute justice and judgment for him. The Arminian Bishop of London, George Montaigne, in 1622, claimed that the king could tax exactly as he wished, because what we have is not our own, and what we gave was but rendering and restoring. Whoa! So, that's private property. Isn't really private then, just borrowing it a while for it from the king? Golly! Bishop Lancelot Andrews, another Arminian, also held that the king had a divine right to be supported in case of necessity. In 1627, so very soon, we will come up against two more clerics, Roger Mannering and Robert Sibthorpe, who draw the thunder of parliamentary outrage down on their breasts, 
by being very specific and very extreme about what a royal authority meant in terms of actual rights. I'll save that bit of fun for later. Don't want to spoil anything for you now. William Bean Beale, though, preached like them that all we had was the king's. He might command all wives, children's, estates, and all. So again, private property isn't really a thing then. Everything belongs to the king. Now let me be clear, this is not just the view of clerics. Some lay people and legal folk held similar views. So Ranulf Crewe was an English judge and a Speaker of the House of Parliament in 1614, and he acknowledged that James was the image and representation of God upon earth, for kings be gods upon earth. An anonymous courtier in 1629 wrote that the king could justly and honestly raise levies without Parliament. We have arrived, as night follows day, at constitutional theory again. All roads lead to constitutional theory as well as Rome. There is a general point always worth remembering, that even among the more radical opponents of the king, the view that the king was God's representative on earth with vice-regal powers was entirely standard, even that law derived from the king. Historian Glenn Burgess makes the point that the trouble really starts when people are too specific about what that means in practice as regards specific taxes and actions. The general principle is kind of widely accepted and out there. It's really a horribly, horribly nuanced discussion. I really wish it was just a nice royalist versus freedom fighters thing. The binary world is so much easier. Sigh and hashtag make history a soundbite. But let me make three points that maybe we can hang our collective hats on. Number one. If you wanted a high view of the extent of divine authority in theory and practice, Arminians were a good place for you to go. Number two. Royal authority was closely identified with the religious view of king as God's vice-regent. Number three. When these rights were expressed in forms that challenged rights of property, such as William's Beale, everything we have is the king's, or were specific, such as customs dues can be imposed by the king without parliament, many in society then started to come out in spots and question royal authority generally. In addition, many by the time of James's reign held a firm view that clerics were a menace to the rule of parliament and law and were polluting the king's mind by advocating arbitrary government in secret. In 1610, Parliament opened legal proceedings against one John Cowell, who was the Vicar General to the Archbishop of Canterbury, because John Cowell denied that the King was bound to rule in accordance with the laws of the land. Now there's a thing. In 1614, Bishop Richard Neal also cast aspersions on the loyalty of the House of Commons because they opposed customs impositions. And if these clerical dudes were saying these things openly people wondered what on earth they might be whispering in the royal shell-like when the lights were low and the cameras were gone. One MP outwardly wished that there were none near his majesty that do infuse this doctrine of absolute sovereignty. When complaining of the work of the cleric Roger Mannering, for whom watched this space, remember, exciting, <laughs> the MP Diggers argued, a great many churchmen are gone too far in this kind. 
By 1640, the side eye against clerical influence was widespread. Did I use the side eye idiom correctly there? Answers on a postcard. Francis Seymour, back from the exile of sheriffdom in the 1628 Parliament, denounced clerics who betrayed the king to himself by telling him his prerogative is above all laws and that his subjects are but slaves. Lord himself was famously accused of trying to bring in an arbitrary government. I could go on, but I think you've suffered enough. For James and Charles, the clergy looked like a good source of support for their comfortably high royal view of authority, and the Arminian clergy provided it in spades, espousing as they did not only the authority of the king, but a highly ordered, ceremonial and top-down view of religious practice. In contrast, the hotter type of Calvinist, your Puritan, looked dangerously populist and open to the idea of resistance theory. So if that's the aliens, or the monsters, whatever label you'd prefer to attach to the cleric, what about the other lot? Well, in the background during our story of England, the legal profession has been generating a constant sort of rumble, like the sound of your neighbour's wheelie bin being put out. So part of the scenery, barely noticeable, but if it wasn't there, well, there'd be a whiff. Sadly, the way things go is that I get into a topic, find out loads of cool stuff, and then have to tell you lot... So before we get onto the link between lawyers and pressure for constitutional reform in Parliament, I'm going on a bit of a dig- dig- digression about the legal profession. Sorry about that. Hold your breath. Here we go. There had been an increasing use of litigation in England to replace the physical means of settling land disputes, such as mm, hitting your neighbour hard in the face when they move the markers. Although, as the history of the Pastons in the 15th century rather demonstrates, That's a process that overlaps quite a bit, since they jousted in both court and field. There's been a growth of the sort of lawyers who, like John Stoner, the 14th century lawyer and judge, son of an Oxfordshire freeholder, came to found a family that was elevated to the peerage in time and lives in my hood at Stoner Park even now, a source of some sort of social mobility. In the main, the medieval legal model was very much a professional one, uh, and as you may or indeed may not know, who, who knows, the inns of court formed the basis of legal education by this time. They seem to have developed from legal guilds after the church banned clerics from teaching anything other than Roman law, and of course common law was not that. So guilds formed in London to do the dirty work of teaching common law, and from somewhere around in the 14th century, they begin to become called inns of court. There were also inns of chancery, and originally there were five inns, but the sergeant's inn was melted down in 1877, and so we're left with but four these days, Gray's Inn, Lincoln's, Inner Temple, and Middle Temple. They were run by senior members of the legal profession, known as benchers, and probably known as many other things as well but of that I cannot speak. Well, by the 16th and early 17th century, the inns of court had rather taken off, as had the legal profession generally. Now, a university education is all very well, but often not always particularly vocational, unless you want to go into the church. I mean, knowing the word of God is important, clearly, and the words of Cicero too, but you can't butter parsnips with Cicero. Universities didn't do law. They left that, to the Inns of Court. So, there are two aspects to the growth of the Inns of Court 
One is that in the century up to about 1640 or 1660-ish, the number of people attending them explodes. Because if you're a landowner or a trader in any way, shape or form, a legal training is handy. I mean, super handy. So many people went into the inns never expecting to become lawyers, but as a training for life. They would nonetheless spend seven years there learning about the law and maybe picking up a degree of reverence for it, though familiarity, as my mother told me sometimes, breeds something else other than reverence, of course, on occasion. The other thing driving growth is that all litigation, as opposed to hitting each other, meant an explosion in the number of lawyers. Now, I really not get too carried away with the subject, but it is worth noting that we already have two types of professional, attorneys and barrister, and the former are, of course, much less grand than the latter, carrying out the more humdrum local work and conveyancing and that sort of thing. But as an example of the explosion of the business, let, us, let me tell you that at the start of Elizabeth's reign, there was about one attorney for every 20,000 people. That's one attorney for every 20,000 people. Less than 100 years later, by 1640, there was one attorney for every 2,500 people. Now, that is some sort of increase and reflects how central law had become in society. There were also, by the way, probably something like 2,000 practising barristers in 1600. As far as social origin is concerned, lawyers of all types seem to have been closely connected with the upper reaches of society, so 60% were from the gentry. But look, that means 40% were not from the gentry, which for early modern Europe still represents a very high degree of social mobility. As an aside, again a digression within a digression, I read an article by Christopher Hill, famously Marxist in tone, who uses this figure to demonstrate how much property in the elite dominated the law, 60% of them. And then I also read one by J.A. Sharp, who uses it to demonstrate the diversity of social background. Isn't history fun? One fact, two completely different interpretations. As one further wrinkle, a man called John Cook was studying for the law in the Inns of Court around this time. Now, I am sorry about all these Cooks. This John Cook has nought to do with Edward Cook and is not to be confused with the Secretary of State and Naval Administrator John Cook, this John Cook is the lawyer who will produce detailed and sadly ignored plans for reform of the legal profession, oh, and will also prepare the brief used at the trial of Charles I, so you'll be hearing more about him. John Cook was born in Husbands Bosworth in Leicestershire and he came from the relatively lowly husbandman class and managed to afford it because his family saw the law as the route to a better life and so managed to scrape together something to start his seven-year apprenticeship. I think he also got a scholarship. So although the Inns of Court were supposed to only accept gentlemen, they clearly accepted a wider range of backgrounds and John would have joined members of the minor gentry but men also from farming, trade and merchant backgrounds. While we're on this topic, another feature of the law is that three quarters of those involved as litigants at the King's Bench and Common Pleas came from sub-gentry social groups. So law, heated or loathed, both in access and professionals, ran deep in society. Now lawyers like to think of themselves in a very different way to that which society sadly often viewed them. 
Christopher Hill is probably grinding an axe because that's the sort of thing that Christopher Hill does when he points to the attitude of radicals like Oliver Cromwell and Gerald Wynne Stanley, who denounced the common law as a conspiracy of the rich to keep the poor in due subjection, and to what was called in 1648 the general inbred hatred in our common people against both our laws and lawyers even adjusting for Hill's view that the law was primarily a tool to protect the rights of property, it's pretty clear that lawyers, as a general profession, especially attorneys, were viewed at best as a necessary evil and would probably be placed by contemporaries towards the monster end of the monster's alien continuum. Barristers in particular thought very differently about this. They saw themselves as the image of the ideal Roman judge of classical literature, a gentleman well-versed in the law who served the public good disinterestedly. Irritating the general public conti continue to think of them as charging outrageous fees and being more concerned with their own welfare than advancing the welfare of the nation and parasites. He pays you money and he takes your choice, but as noted, you certainly pays you money. So back to it then, here endeth the digression. There have been a few common views of how all this affected Parliament. Well, James apparently had a very poor view of the influence of lawyers and held them responsible for all that bother about his entirely reasonable customs impositions. So he issued a proclamation before Parliament against curious and wrangling lawyers who may seek reputation by startling needless questions. But obviously he said it in a Scottish accent. Interestingly, James was joined in his dislike of lawyers in Parliament by two others who had a thorough legal training. Edwin Sands, Master of Parliamentary Organisation in James's Parliament, was one of those, and he claimed that the violence of lawyers hath, in former times, abused this house. And he also complained that matters relating to the church had, through the cunning of lawyers, been carried clean contrary to the meaning of the house. And then there's, there's the royalist Francis Neston, a man with a clearly unpronounceable second name, who went to Lincoln's Inn and wrote a book refuting the claims to antiquity of Parliament from the Anglo-Saxons by the likes of Edward Cook. Nonsense, said Neston, with far greater historical accuracy, it must be said, than Cook. Parliament's only emerged in the reign of Henry III. Parliament's proper function, he wrote, was to offer the king advice and assistance solely with respect to those issues that he and his council laid before it, which is very much the Scottish model, it has to be said. Despite such antipathy, lawyers in Parliament were a significant grouping. They rose to a height a bit earlier than our period. There were about a 100 of them in the parliaments that caused James so much trouble between 1604 and 1610, about 20% of the composition of the House, basically. Actually, for reasons or reasons unknown, their proportion of the House fell to 1628. But nonetheless, in a House of Commons of 489 MPs, there were still 78 of them in 1626 and 64 in 1628. So they're a significant block. Also, I think this figure from the estimable historyofparliament.org for all your parliamentary history needs is folks actually practising or currently training in law. So the figure of those who'd had some legal training it's probably much higher than that. 
The point is, though, that there are plenty of people who understand the law and the history of the law in Parliament for whom it is their business, and furthermore, whose training gives them a respect and reverence for the common law. One historian, indeed, described the period as the only period of English history when the policy of the government has actually been based on historical research. Their priorities are not always clear, though, are not always of one block, so they categorically don't come as a piece. The story, I think, is similar to that of the aliens, sorry, I mean the clerics, that you can find them on either side of the divide, both of religion and the disputes over parliamentary privileges and liberties. So there is a tradition that lawyers tended towards Puritanism. So certainly John Cook, who I mentioned, was of that persuasion. Cook went to Gray's Inn and was taught by the noted Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs. John calls him the heavenly Dr. Sibbs. The evidence of an overwhelmingly close link between Puritanism and the Inns of Court, though, appears a bit dodgy in the historian Wilfred Prest's work, but there was a tendency towards it. And that might be centred in particular inns. So Lincoln's Inn, for example, had a definite connection with Puritanism. And Lincoln's Inn, as it happens, consistently returned the most lawyers to Parliament. Prest concludes that the inns were also significant in that they provided a central point of contact for Puritan lawyers and gentry from all over the country. That was a place they could come, which gave them an opportunity for them to get together and get in touch with each other, Puritans all over the place. And lawyers at the inn were very much drawn from a very wide geographical range all around England. So, lawyers and gentry with legal training, there were a plenty in the house. There was an association with Puritanism, and traditionally Puritans seemed to be more likely to kick against the idea of royal absolutism and prerogative. King James clearly believed lawyers were trouble. In 1616, again in a speech to Star Chamber, James castigated the vain and popular humours of some lawyers at the bar that think they're not eloquent and bold spirit enough, except they meddle with the king's prerogative. And there are plenty of specific examples of lawyers leading the argument for the primacy of common law and arguing that while, yes, monarchs were accountable to God and maybe even accountable only to God, but their power was limited by custom and law. Edward Cook is the obvious example that we've talked about many times before, but there were many others, such as Thomas Headley, who used the argument when speaking against John Cowell in 1610. A substantial number believe that ultimately royal power and authority derived from the people. Now, it's argued by revisionists that this was a post-ipso facto thing, made up only from 1642 when things were kicking off. But it was the line taken by John Hoskins in 1610, by Edward Sands in 1614, and by Robert Phillips in 1628, so it predated 1642. Hennage Finch, Speaker of the House, and absolutely no anti-royalist radical whatsoever, rather the reverse in the brown nose category, put it that it is the highest prerogative of the king that he cannot do against the law. Maybe the ultimate question is, how did things fall out when the brown stuff hit the whirly thing? When forced to choose, which way did the lawyers jump? Well, I have some stats for you. Of the 128 benches at the Inns of Court, the senior members of the Inns, remember, here is how it fell out. 61 of them 
went with Parliament, 34 went with the King, and 33 managed to duck. So, where a choice was made, two-thirds of the lawyers chose Parliament. Now look, this in itself is no more definitive than the arguments about clerical and lay opinions. It's been pointed out, for example, that the Inns of Court were, of course, in an area controlled by Parliament during the Civil War, London, and maybe the numbers would have been very different if they'd been in Royalist Oxford. On the other hand, there was a strong traditional loyalty towards the monarch. Uh, the, there are many MPs that stand with Parliament and the Petition of Right in the 1620s, but ultimately join the King's side since they believe that they owe the King that much. And on that basis, maybe some of those royalist lawyers were acting against their basic instincts. But looking at all the evidence, the balance has to be that lawyers were more likely to tend towards a view that royal power was and should be limited, either in principle or practice. And there is no reason to doubt the sincerity of their beliefs, as has been claimed by new revisionists. Conversely, it seems equally clear that Arminian clerics in particular tended to support royal absolutism, and actually that's a clearer relationship, I think. Nor is there any reason to doubt the sincerity of their views. As with everything in the civil wars, there are no hard and fast rules, there are no black and whites, but I think we can conclude that the clerics versus lawyer thing has got some legs as a theory. It may not offer an unfailing predictor of performance, but it does provide some explanation for the motivations of a significant number of individuals. And it does seem to have been explicitly recognised at the time. And as we'll see, Charles's reaction to the perceived troublemakers in the House and suspicion of Calvinist clerics would have far-reaching consequences. That is it then, everyone. Wish me luck this week. Third time of asking is the History of England tour, when, of course, there is a certain amount of chaos in London due to Queenie's death. Still, I am hopeful it will be a hoot anyway. Meanwhile, check out the British Revolutionary Biographies on the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. And thank you very, very much for listening. As always, thank you for all your reviews and comments and on Facebook and iTunes and all the rest of it. It's very lovely of you. I hope you're enjoying it. Good luck and have a great week. <laughs>